Hi everyone, and thank you for checking out the Dancing Eyes podcast episode 9. My name's Frankie Caputo, and this is a podcast where I talk to people with nystagmus about life for a while. We talk about some of the ups, the downs, the good things, the bad things, and everything in the middle. Today my guest is John Paul. John Paul works as an audio engineer, and he also has a degree in philosophy. In this episode, we talk a lot about his passion for audio engineering, and we also discuss some philosophical topics as well. I really love this episode, and this is definitely a special one to me, and I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. If you're watching this video on YouTube, make sure to hit the like button if you enjoyed it, and also leave me a comment and let me know what you think. And if you haven't done so already, hit the subscribe button. I also just wanted to mention that all of the episodes are now available on Apple Podcasts, so if you'd rather just listen to it instead of watching it, you can also just pull up Dancing Eyes Podcast on there as well, and you'll find it. Lastly, new episodes will be out on the first and third Monday of every month, so make sure to keep your eyes out for those. And with all that being said, let's get on with the show. What's up, John Paul? How you doing? Good, Frankie. How you doing? I'm doing well. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to tell my story here and uh, to hopefully give some some uh, cause for hope to parents who might be, um, you know, a little bit down about their their kids being diagnosed with with uh, nystagmus or um, you know people who have nystagmus, you know, maybe needing a little bit of reassurance or encouragement that um, this is not the end of the world this is you know just uh one more challenge to overcome and overcome it you can and and you've got a lot of stuff too you've overcome a lot of challenges and we're going to get into it later but you also do some things that i think a lot of people would be pretty surprised that somebody with nystagmus does so yeah that's for sure yeah um i'm and i'm happy to you know get into it um i guess probably the best place to start is at the beginning let's um, do it so I was, um, I guess the first time my parents noticed something was wrong um, with my eyes was when I was an infant. Um, the uh, the pediatrician, when I was in for a, a routine checkup, noticed that my eyes were kind of swinging back and forth. And he said to my mom, this, do his eyes always do that? And she said, yeah. And she just, she thought it was normal um, that it was, you know, just a baby I'm the oldest of, of four kids, four boys. And, um, I, you know, my mom really didn't have any, uh, idea that that was not normal. So we went to an eye doctor and that started the whole process where eventually I was diagnosed with congenital nystagmus, um, and among other things, uh, I'm also nearsighted and I have, um, a pretty severe light sensitivity. So I can't go from really dark places to really light places without needing some time for adjustment. And uh, I need to wear sunglasses outside all the time. Um, otherwise um, I'll burn my retinas because they have no pigment. Um, I have uh, ocular albinism uh, is what it's called in addition to the nystagmus. Um, and so in the course of getting these, this diagnosis um, and we saw a couple of doctors through that process um, there were some things that they ended up telling us, um, that I wouldn't be able to do. Um, they said, you know, I would, um, I'd never ride a bike. I'd never learn to read. Uh, I would never play baseball. Uh, I'd never go to college. I would never drive a car. Um, I'm happy to say that 25 years later, after finding out all of these things, 
I learned to read pretty well. Um, and a lot sooner than a lot of the kids my age when I was in school. Um, Some of those things are just so drastic. They the, are. The reading they, thing, the college thing, really. Yeah, they really are. Because I, I sit here now. I was literally sitting in my office at the very college where I work now that I graduated from five <laughs> years ago. Um, which is a great part of my story too. And I can tell that a little bit later on. Um, I ride a bike to work every day. Um, I played little league baseball for a couple of years. Um, and that's another part of the story that we'll get to in a little bit. Um, there's a reason why it was only for a couple of years and, and not, you know, any longer than that. Um, there's, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, I mean, I've, I've traveled internationally. Um, I, I've worked with some pretty well-known musicians uh, as a result of my career being a, a, an audio engineer um, in the, the place where I work. Um, so when your parents hear your doctor say something like this, do you continue going to this doctor or do you go see somebody else? You know, I'm not totally clear on exactly when we start we stopped seeing that particular doctor and went somewhere else. Um, I know that they went through a couple of different eye doctors um, at that, at that time. Um, and it wasn't until we came across, and I think at the time he was in Philadelphia um, where I grew up, um, uh, we came across Dr. Richard Hurdle. Um, and a lot of people in the nystagmus community will know who he is. Um, he's probably one of the top three researchers in the world when it comes to nystagmus. Um, and we are, my, I know my parents and I are incredibly fortunate to have crossed his cross paths with him, uh, because he gave us a lot of reason for hope, um, as a, uh, as a young child, um, and, you know, and as young parents for them, um, he said, you know, there's no cause for alarm. It's, it, you know, it might make some of those things more challenging for him, but just because, you know, he has nystagmus doesn't mean he won't be able to do those things. Um, he said, I could be, you know, very much a normal child, um, engage in normal childhood activities. Um, it really wouldn't have all that dramatic an effect on most things it might make school a little bit more difficult he said but it wouldn't make it impossible um this is a huge difference yeah it was incredible um i mean he he really changed the entire outlook just by being a hopeful voice um and he's you know as a researcher he said that there was always new things on the horizon that that you know could help me you know live you know an even more normal life than I already would. Um, I mean, we followed him around for, for years uh, to all different places where he would go, uh, you know, following grant money for research. Um, he went to National Institute of Health in um, Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, he went to different, we went to different conferences where he was uh, presenting. Um, and then about 12, 13 years ago or thereabouts, we caught up with him in Pittsburgh um, where he was at the University of Pittsburgh uh, Children's Medical Center. Um, and figure I'm a early teens at that point in time. Um, and he's telling, he's, he's checking me out. He's, you know, catching up on my case because he's kind of kept 
you know, we, we've, we've not seeing him. I see my normal eye doctor um, that the rest of my family went to. Um, and he obviously knew about all the, the issues and he was able to um, kind of work around some of those things with um, making sure I had a good prescription for eyeglasses um, since I need them all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's getting caught up on my case and he's looking and he's seeing, you know, based on, you know, my, my old files from, um, you know, years, years, you know, prior. Um, and he says, well, you're, I had a head turn, um, and a pretty significant one at that, um, at that point in time. And he said it had gotten worse, um, since, uh, you know, from when he had seen me, uh, previously. Um, and he said, look, this is one of the things that you do have to deal with, with nystagmus is that your, your head turn for where you're not, you know, to where your null point is, it, it can change. It can, and you know, it can get worse over time if it's in this one spot and my head was kind of tilted off, you know, looking. So my face was looking, you know, towards my left, the left side of my body, my eyes would be, you know, centered. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, if you don't, do something now to um, correct the head tilt, um, you're going to end up having arthritis in your neck by the time you're 20. And that was something that, you know, me at that time, I didn't really understand what was going on. I'm, you know, early teens, um, still very much naive to the whole thing, uh, the whole situation. Didn't really understand what nystagmus was. Yeah. Had a hard time explaining it to people. I don't know about um, you, but when I was in my early teens, I didn't even know that I had a hell. I didn't even know that I had a head tilt. <laughs> I only I saw it in pictures. I, I I had seen it in pictures too, and I had people who would point it out. Um, I don't know if you if you had the yep. same experience. Mm-hmm. Um, which sometimes kids could be a little rude about it. Um, yeah, it's like, look, that's just that's me. That's who I am. My head. I have to do that in order to see the camera. Sorry. Yeah, some people just don't understand it. But exactly. if you explain it to them, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll understand it. But especially when you're an early teenager, like you don't even really know what's going on. Right. So it's hard right. to explain. And neither does anybody else. And so it's kind of this whole compounding problem of, you know, how do I explain this to people? Uh, you know, that this is part of who I am. This is how I have to interact with the world and I can't do anything about it. Um it's definitely different because there's a lot of things out there that people will see more often. So they don't really have to be explained, but this is one of those things that you hear that one in a thousand statistic. And I, I don't, I don't believe that. But anyway, so Dr. Hurdle is telling you about the time um, you're 20, you might get arthritis in your neck because yeah, of your head tilt. Exactly. So um, he's telling us this. Uh, so my parents talk and they got, you know, at this point they're they're in charge of my medical care because i'm a minor um and so they're discussing this and they figured okay you know what we got to do this because it's kind of this is important um we want to make sure that you know we you know we anything that we can do now to make sure that he has a whole you know fruitful life uh, without you know undue pain and suffering um we want to do that so a few months after that particular conversation with Dr. Hurdle, I went in, uh, we went back to Pittsburgh um, and uh, I went in for the, um, 
what's known as the Kestenbaum procedure. Um, essentially what it is, is uh, they reposition the eyes within the eye sockets by uh, moving some of the, um, the muscle tissue uh, around. Um, they'll make incisions and cut out certain, like a certain part of muscle tissue essentially um, and, and add some to the other side um, to basically correct the entire um, tilt. So my head went from being probably 10 to 15 degrees off center um, to the left to about, they brought it actually five degrees right um, so that by the time I had completely healed from the surgery, uh, I'd be essentially dead center, which is, I think, oh, so they where took I am the now. fact they 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 took the idea that your head would continue turning after the procedure into consideration. They did, but part of that was was the healing process. So the muscles would would kind of settle into place um, as the the stitches dissolved and then the muscles healed. Um, and so this is another thing that's really cool. Um, my parents had explained to me what the, process, what, what the procedure was, but the way they explained it was not actually how it took place. Um, it was actually a lot simpler um, because surgical technology has advanced, had advanced so far by that point in time. And I, I have no idea now where it is. It, it could have advanced even further. Who, who knows? Um, but the way that it was described to me that they'd have to do it was actually not the way that it ended up taking place, um, which ended up being really good because um, it meant a lot less time healing wise and um, no visible scarring on my face, um, which I know they would minimize um, anyway, but you'd still probably have some scarring from, I think, the older version of the procedure. Huh. Okay. Um, so how long was the healing process? So I had stitches uh, for about a week uh, and they were the self-dissolving kind. Mm -hmm. um, so as time went, like it was really difficult for the first couple of days to open my eyes um, because uh, it just, it hurt. Um, my eyelids were rubbing over these stitches and it was very uncomfortable. Um, kind of like having something in your eye, but you can't get it out because it's supposed to be there. Oh yeah. Um, so I had those for about a week. Um, by about weeks end or so they had dissolved. Um, but there was still a little bit more time about a month, I think was what they had said in terms of, you know, taking extra care, um, not, uh, rubbing your eyes, um, doing anything, you know, uh, super intense, um, you know, with your eyes or whatever. Um, you know, no, no crazy, uh, um, sports or anything like that just be very gentle and you know well you barely have a no point at all right now from what i'm seeing yeah so that was and that's the great thing is you know we're we're well over a decade removed from this procedure now and i've had very you know uh no no point to speak of like you said like you like yeah you said. i don't see any no point um people still say that you know from time to time, like they'll see, they'll, they'll comment on my eyes. Um, you know, they'll notice them, um, swinging back and forth. Um, it gets really bad when I'm tired, which I'm sure you've noticed as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but for the most part, people don't comment on it anymore, which is, 
I guess a testament to the fact that most people don't really feel the need to comment on something that's different about you after a certain point, like they reach this level of maturity. Um, I think some people just also stop caring about yeah. other people so much. Like, man, I've got so much stuff I got to worry about for myself. I don't really care about the dude's eyes. It, exactly. It's kind of, you know, let me worry about the the plank in my own eye instead of the speck in this other guy's eye. Um, <laughs> you know, for, for anyone who's familiar with scripture. Um, no, that went over my head. Um, they'll get that reference. That's uh, you know, <laughs> um, wor- basically, you know, the idea is worry about yourself first because you got your own issues. And then, you know, if you have time later, you yeah. can point out someone else's to them if they haven't seen them already so i am curious what you do about this so let's say you're meeting somebody for the first time or maybe not for the first time but you're just getting to know somebody but your eyes start going crazy i know for me sometimes i'll be talking to somebody and they don't necessarily know about my eye condition and sometimes just out of nowhere they'll start freaking out just going sporadic and i feel like i have to address them just because i feel like it, it creates an elephant in the room and i have to alleviate it so does something like that ever happen to you? You know, not that I've noticed. Um, I've typically been pretty good about, uh, you know, uh, not putting myself in social situations where I will have issues. Um, sometimes it happens though, um, where I, you know, I'll, I'll be out late, I'll be tired or whatever. And my eyes kind of go crazy. And that's usually when, um, I kind of get, you know, hey, listen, I gotta get going here. I'm I'm tired. My eyes are going bananas right now. Um, and most people are typically pretty understanding on on that front. Um, if someone says something straight up, you know, like, hey, you know, I noticed your eyes are moving. Like, what's that about? Mm-hmm. I'll kind of explain. You know, I've gotten pretty good at it. Um, you know, oh, I have this, you know, congenital defect it's called nystagmus basically means that my eyes move involuntarily you know and i can't really control it and it could be you know barely noticeable or it could be right up in your face depending on the situation that's just the way that it is Um, i have the urge to tell people that i'm not high it seems (laughs) to be their go-to that i'm high or i'm wasted or something (laughs) um yeah, I, I think, I, you know, every once in a while, people have been asked, have asked me, you know, if I've been drinking or anything, and I'll say, no, that's just my eyes just do that. Um, yeah. And that's usually enough. Um, I don't usually get the, you know, are you high? Um, <laughs> but that's mostly because the community that I'm in, we're, we're um, pretty well drug free for the most part. I mean, that, you'll see it here and there, but by and large, drugs are really not a part of um, community life where I live. I hear you. Which I'm very fortunate in that regard. Um, I, I think it's drugs are really, you know, as a side note, I, I think anyone who struggles with drug addiction, I think that's, you know, um, a really terrible problem to have. And for the people who are trying desperately to get out of that, I think that's really awesome. Um, you know, uh, as a, as a musician and as someone who enjoys listening to music, um, one of my favorite songs of all time is Master of Puppets by Metallica. That's a good one. Which is all about drug addiction. And how- Really? It, yeah, it is. It's I have to up. listen to the words more. <laughs> um, but essentially, um, the drug is the master and the 
the person who uses drugs is the puppet oh. and the drug has strings, you know, it, it basically makes the person want to do drugs. Um, I had no idea that's what the song was about. Yeah. Well, if you listen, there's a line in there. It's a, uh, uh, chop your breakfast on a mirror, which is essentially a reference to doing lines of cocaine. Oh yeah. Oh man. Um, oh, I'm going to hear that song differently now. Yeah. Well, that's I mean, it makes thing. total sense when, when you tell me that it makes total sense. Cause I, I hear the lyrics in my head. I'm like, yeah, well it make, I get it. But. Yeah. It, it's, mind-blowing when you figure things out like that and a lot of their a lot of their music um is about struggling with addiction um wounds from childhood um things of that nature things that you know are very deeply personal to um the guy this the lead singer james hetfield james hetfield Um, yep and uh I, a lot of what they, a lot of their music really resonates with me because um, there's a lot of things that, you know, I have to, that I deal with on a daily basis, you know, both because of the nystagmus and, you know, because of other things that I have within my life that are completely separate from nystagmus um, that, you know, the music helps me kind of cope with a little bit and um, gives me uh a little bit of strength to um you know keep going when it's a little bit challenging let's talk um, about some music then yeah I didn't, absolutely. Know into, I didn't know that you played instruments what do you play well when i say i'm a musician um i guess you don't have to play an instrument to be a musician. not necessarily but in my case my instrument is actually the musicians on stage um being controlled through a mixing console um, and put out into the the house uh, PA system, um, the, the speakers, you know, so the people who are attending the concert can hear them. Um, most people don't think of, you know, a group of musicians, um, whether they're, you know, actors on a stage or uh, in a musical, um, for instance, or, um, you know, people playing guitar and drums and bass and singing as uh, a musical instrument in and of itself, but in a way that it, it is because the idea is to blend those people together in a way that sounds harmonious. Um, and so that's been a lot of, you know, my, my study, um, my passion over the last uh, eight, nine years or so has been learning how to do that really well. Um, and that's why I've, you know, gone down the path of um, becoming an audio engineer, um, because I want to work with musicians. Um, I enjoy it. I think it's um, an incredible gift um, to work with people uh, whose sole purpose in life is to create music for us, for other people to enjoy. Um, and if my role with the band is to make sure that they get heard in the best possible way by the people who come out to hear them. Um, then that's very important as, job, by the way. Very important. Yeah. Well, I was going to say it's just as important as the people who are up there on the stage mm-hmm. actually playing the music um, because uh, there's a, there's a saying in, in theater um, uh, an actor without techies is just a mime emoting in the dark. Um but it's a good one. 
it is. And essentially it's saying, you know, if you don't have people who uh, run the sound, um, run the lights, um, make sure that, you know, if there's video involved, that the video works properly and all of those factors that go into putting on a really good production. Um, keep kicking my pop filter out of the way here. Um, then no one's going to see anything. No one's going to hear anything. It's there's, there's nothing to enjoy. So there's nothing more frustrating going to a play or going to watch a band play. And the, the, the members playing are great, but it's not mixed properly. And yeah. You, you can't hear the singer cause the drums are too loud or you, sure. you can't hear the bass. It's so frustrating. Yeah. I totally, totally agree. Totally get that. Um, and you know, I feel like, you, I feel like you would have some pressure on you though to absolutely. Yes. A hundred percent. Um, yeah. It is without a doubt one of the most um, high pressure things, especially when you've got someone there who's looking over your shoulder, trying to tell you how to do your job, um, telling you straight up like, oh, I can't hear this or that or the other thing. Like, well, you know, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can here. Um, I, you know, the, the smart ass in me would love to say, you know, if you think you could do a better job, here you go. Step right in. <laughs> Have at it, but uh, I, I, I'm curious how your eyes react to the pressure. When I'm under pressure, if I'm anxious, my eyes will start will start freaking out, and you have to deliver in front. Of that's the great crowds. thing about that's so that's the yeah, uh, and you're right that my eyes do go a little bit haywire when the pressure's on, um, which is why I try to take a lot of that away by getting ahead of it early doing sound checks and stuff like that so that um when it comes time for the actual show it can run pretty smoothly um mm. and i don't have to make you know i'm not under the gun trying to get stuff you know fixed because it's not working right had to do that before not fun um I but bet. the great the the nice thing about sound is that you don't need your eyes um as long as you know where, and I, I lay out my mixing console the same way every time. So if anyone's ever seen what a mixing console looks like, it's got, you know, a big bunch of um, knobs. knobs and faders and everything, all kinds of stuff on it. It looks, it looks like a spaceship. It looks like <laughs> out of Star Wars. Star Trek. Completely Star- honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it is one of the most daunting things to look at uh, if you have no idea what, you're doing but when you've had enough time and practice on one of these things um on a mixing console it becomes second nature um and one of the things that i try to do for myself is i try to lay it out the same way every time so i've got you know nine or ten faders that i set up just for drums and then the next one is always bass and then i've got you know if i've got a piano on the stage i've got piano right after bass and then I've got my guitars and, you know, any other instruments that I have to fit in there, whether there's, you know, someone who's bringing, um, say, a saxophone or they've got violins or uh, a mandolin, um, things of that nature. I'll fit those in right after I get guitars. Um, and those will be my acoustic plugins and my electric guitars with microphones on amplifiers. Um and then the last thing in my chain is always vocals. Um, and I always lay it out the same way so that it, when it comes time to actually run the show, I know where everything is 
pretty much by feel. Yeah, you don't um, even have to see it at that point. I don't really consistent. have to see it. Exactly. Yeah. And then because I work on the same board all the time when I'm doing music, um, I know where controls are for various parameters. Like, um, And a lot of these things are going to sound you know, uh, very technical, um, but things like high-pass filters and, and gates, um, compressors, limiters, equalizers, all that stuff. Like, I know where all of those knobs and controls are. So I don't really need to be looking, you know, with my eyes for stuff. I'm generally looking by feel um, for the most part um, to make my adjustments when the time is, you know, when time calls for it, basically. Um, and I think and that concept of kind of knowing where things are because they're staying consistent is something that helps out in a lot of aspects of life, not absolutely. just Absolutely, absolutely. So that was something that my parents found out when I was um, a toddler. I was about three years old. Um, and they we had just moved um, to a new house and they had just put carpets. It, it had been a hardwood floor before and they had put carpets down in the living room and the dining room. But there was a gap probably about, 16 18 inches wide between the two rooms where there was no carpet it was down under the hardwood and at the time there was a pad and a carpet and it was probably about two inches of change in depth between the the carpeted surface and and the hardwood floor um and i was you know toddling from the the dining room into the living room and my foot caught on the carpet and I went flying into a chair and I have a, a cut uh, or a scar now from, from getting a cut on my eye. Um, you probably can't see it on this one. Um, nah. It's somewhere in, in here. I believe you. Um, from smacking my head into a chair uh, because I didn't account for the change in the uh, height of the floor in the map of my house that I kept in my head. I'm three years uh, old at this point in time, and I have mapped out my house in my head so I can navigate. How cool is that that our brains are capable of doing that, even at three years old? It's incredible. And I still do it to this day. Like, I, you know, I'll walk around my house in the middle of the night in the dark and not have a problem because I know how many steps it is from the top to the bottom and vice versa. Um, I know exactly where the couch and the dining room table are downstairs. And I know the, the, you know, this, I live in a pretty small apartment, but it's a, it's a two story, like kind of townhome sort of thing. So I know exactly how much distance there is between um, the, the kitchen counter and the, um, uh, the bottom part of the, the banister rail for the stairs. Um, I know you don't drive, but this must help a lot when it comes to the cycling as well. It does. Yeah. Um, there's always, you know, I always know where certain things are, you know, certain things to avoid, uh, when it comes to, you know, bumps in the road or the, 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 uh, cycling service surface, um, it's, it, it makes life a lot easier. Um, as far as just navigating in general, same thing at, at work, you know, for the most part, there's a lot of things that I know where they are. So I don't have to worry about watching too closely you know where i'm going like obviously I, you know with people milling around at work um you always want to be careful and conscious of those uh those are the people around you but for the most part like yeah i could 
pretty well get around day or night without needing um vision. to see everything yeah yeah exactly exactly to Which get back a, to your oh sorry go ahead nice it's it's a nice benefit um if i'm being honest you know Makes to be able to do easier. that yeah absolutely i wanted to get back to your career here for a second because sure. it does it does really interest me. You have a, you have a really interesting career. I'm kind of curious how you kind of transitioned into the audio engineering and into, into that industry. Sure. Um, so I kind of caught a little bit of a taste of this when I was, you know, in my early years of high school, um, I was part of a choir and uh, every Saturday we would meet to rehearse. Um, and one of the things that we would do is we would make sure that the piano was mic'd up because um the choir was uh, too loud to actually um, uh, for the piano to be able to keep up. Essentially, there was there wasn't enough sound coming out of the piano um, to uh, allow us, the singers, to to um, uh, actually hear it. Okay. Without needing some amplification, so um, there were a couple. There was me and another guy um, in the choir. We're about the same age. Um, and we would every Saturday, we'd make sure that the sound system that we used to, to uh, amplify the piano and the director's voice was set up um, so that uh, everything would work. Um, and so that kind of, you know, kind of got me started in the, on the, the, the path. Um, but it wasn't really until I got to college um, that uh, I got really interested in it. Um, and this is um, going back to um, the beginning when I when they, the, the doctors told me I'd never go to college. Um, spoiler alert, they were wrong. I did go to college. I graduated actually. And uh, because I was able to go to college, I was able to find my career. Um, now I was in college studying philosophy because um, I thought I was on a completely different path at the time. Uh, but I became very, very involved with the, uh, the audiovisual department um, while I was in school uh, as a student worker. And we were responsible for putting up and taking down all of the equipment that was used for things like um, the musicals and the drama club productions that were put on, um, the concerts um, that we put on outdoors, uh, all kinds of other stuff. Um, so I got pretty well acquainted with uh, stage and um, audio equipment, lighting equipment, all kinds of stuff. Um, and I got to a point where I wanted to start learning how to do sound because I had been asked to uh, run the sound for um, uh, the musical that was being put on one semester. We did uh, Pirates of Penzance um, by, I think it's Rogers and Hammerstein. Um, and I'm sure anyone who's a theater kid will correct me if I'm mistaken there. Um, I know for a fact I have a couple listeners who are into theater, so maybe maybe we'll get an answer. <laughs> we very well may. Um, and I had at that point in time, I was a sophomore in college, and this was my first time ever doing sound uh, was for this musical, and I really had no idea what I was doing. Um, I was just muddling my way through. Like I understood some of the basic concepts of making things sound balanced. But when it came to things like equalization, you know, tuning voices um, based on the microphone, the voice, the room, uh, and the speakers that were being used in the room, I, I understood none of that. That was all completely foreign concept to me. Um, 
and don't even, I don't even want to talk about compression yet because that's a whole nother <laughs> can of worms. Um, that even still, like I have trouble understanding how that works. Um, and we're talking, you know, eight, nine years down the road from where I got started. So, um, take that for what you will. Uh, but that was the thing was I want to, you know, I, I had, it was something that interested me, something that I wanted to learn how to do. Um, and so as time went on, um, I started to do more and more live sound stuff, whether it was just spoken word, you know, vo you know, um, uh, like, uh, talks given by professors here, um, at the university, um, to, um, different members of the student body for different things, um, to helping out with getting the PA, the sound systems, the speakers and stuff set up for school dances and things like that. Like that was kind of where I got started, but live sound was always where my heart was. Um, and so at a certain point, I think it was my junior year of college, um, we had started to invest in some new audio equipment. We had started getting new speakers, subwoofers, and a mixer because we had been renting all of this stuff so much that we decided it was time to invest in it, to own it for ourselves. So um, I got lucky. At that point in time, there was uh, a guy who was going around the country um, giving classes on how to use some of this equipment. Um, I can't remember if it, they might've been, they might've been free classes, um, which if that was the case, that was an incredible gift right there. So I got a couple of buddies who I was working with at the time to go with me. Um, because, uh, like you mentioned before, I don't drive. Um, so without these two friends, we would not have been able to go to this, this class. Right. Um, and it was essentially just a one day thing of, you know, here's here's the equipment here's how it works here's how to use it this is this is what to do um and it was eye-opening like just just looking at all of all of these things and like oh whoa this is how an equalizer works this is what a compressor does this is you know like that's the, exciting man it's exciting it when that great. happens yeah um and so that really started me on the path. And then I discovered a YouTube video um, and I forget what it was called, but it was this guy, the same guy walking through how he builds a mix for a full band, you know, full, dr full drum kit, um, bass guitar, keys, uh, acoustic guitar, electric guitars, vocals, all, all of that stuff. He's building all of that. And he's showing you while looking, you know, down over top of, um, the exact same mixing console that we have here, the one that I, that I'm totally familiar with. Um, he's showing it, showing you how to use it. Um, and those kinds of resources, you know, they're not, it's not like they don't exist period. Um, they do exist. They are out there. You just have to, sometimes you have to dig for them a little bit to find them. Um, the internet's a very deep place. It is. It is. And uh, fortunately, some of these things, you know, were, were a little bit easier to find. Uh, and that was a huge benefit to learning how to mix um, sound. Um, and so you went from philosophy to audio engineering. 
Well, so that's here's here's part of the, oh. the crazy part of the story. So I stuck with the philosophy degree because we don't have an audio engineering degree here um, at the school where I I work and where I where I graduated. So my career is based solely on my experience um, oh. and what I've basically what I've done, um, what I've taught myself. I did not know that. I thought that you got a degree in audio no, engineering. Huh. No, my my degree is so you have in, a philosophy degree. Is in philosophy, yeah. Sick. Which, um, in some ways, it it does help with some of the things that I do, uh, from a career perspective, from a work perspective, because you have to really think about certain things very differently than you might, or or think very logically. And a lot of what work, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of audio uh, engineering work is a lot of you know logical linear thinking because if you think about signal flow you've got your microphone in front of you that plugs into an interface in your computer that routes that sound into you know uh whatever it is that you want it to go into whether that's a a video call or um whatever um and and it's kind of the same thing each sort you know stop along the way you can trace it by a line um and so it's great for for you know trying to think linearly and think logically um but it's also really good when you have to step outside of the box and think okay the way that i always do this the way that i always you know approach this particular situation isn't going to work this time so what do i have to do differently in order to achieve the same end result which ultimately is a stellar production um, that everyone walks away from just absolutely awestruck. Like, wow, that was fantastic. I can't believe that they did this or that or the other thing. With Ideally, f- funny enough, like I, I feel like ideally, you know you've done a great job with the mixing when nobody says anything about it. That is 100% correct. Um, more often than not, I'll walk away from, you know, an event or I'll, you know, I'll be, you know, working afterwards, getting everything kind of cleaned up. Not a word from anyone. <laughs> no one says a word about how great it sounded. They'll say, you know, oh, did you like, you know, they played this song or that song or, wow, that was, you know, really cool how this, you know, this one group. You, you know, give yourself like a mini tap on the back when you hear people talking about how good the performers were. Cause like, yeah, that's your job, man. Exactly. And so I'm like, okay, good. People were, people enjoyed it. Like, that's what I want to hear. Like, I don't necessarily need to hear, you know, from people directly, like, man, you did a really great job mixing their sound. Like that was really awesome. Um, I don't need to hear that necessarily. Like it's, don't get me wrong. It's nice. It's really nice to hear that. (laughs) I love hearing it because, uh, you know, it, it's reassuring. It lets me know like, Hey, I'm, I'm doing a good job here. But if I'm hearing people walk away from it, like, you know, talking about how great of a performance it was, that definitely tells me, okay, you did good, kid. You ever so, been heckled? Uh, yes. Yes, I have. Uh, um, let's talk about it. You know, <laughs> not enjoyable. Um, I get people, usually, sometimes it's, it's people, you know, shout my name, um, uh, you know, because something goes wrong. It's like, you know what? I'm a human being. Yes, I do a really good job 
90% of the time, but the other 10%, there's going to be a problem. And you know what? I'm going to do the best I can to fix it. Um, so it's usually like a crewmate or somebody that you know personally. No, it's, it's, it's crowd. It's crowd. How does the crowd know your name? Uh, Are they students? Yeah, they're all students. They all know, okay. they all know who I am. Um, uh, I, that's, mean, I feel a, like that's even more pressure, man. It can be. They it all know be. who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, it's interesting too because <laughs> I'm involved in so much that it's gotten to a point where I'll not actually be working at an event of for whatever reason, and I'll have students who work for me who are there in my place, and they'll um, get called upon to render assistance. But the person who's asking for assistance is calling for me by name. Oh, awkward. Uh, which does get, that gets a little awkward. It's like, uh, I'm, I'm actually not there. That's <laughs> my student workers. So, you know, that, that's, there, there's some, some interesting things, you know, with, you know, with how my relationship with the campus community um, with regards to my job uh, is structured. Um, and it does make for somewhat challenging situations when things don't necessarily go according to plan. Well, it's an interesting dynamic. Well, you yeah. graduated from there, so people know you personally. Exactly. But you also have a job to do, and you work there professionally now. So yeah, you've got. And you I have, still have like the human John Paul the body. Um, yeah. Because I, you know, there's people that I interact with on a, you know a regular basis. Um, that, you know because I interact with them so much or so often um, we kind of become friends through that professional interaction um, to where we, you know, I get to you know see them in a non-professional capacity. And it's, you know, there's a little bit of a, a there, there's a different sense to how that interaction goes um, with some of those people. Um, there's a little bit more comfort and, um, you know, just, overall like hey i can let my guard down a little bit on mm. my side and on their side um but the, you know sometimes it's difficult too because you know you have to be like okay i have to i'm i'm speaking in my professional capacity here like this this is you know this is the situation essentially and whatever it is you know sometimes you have to be like okay i have to set aside the fact that um we are friends and it's kind of like when a teacher is cool or a professor is cool. They they have they have a job to do, but you also yeah. just want to talk to them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And there were some professors I had who were kind of like that, um, and some staff members that I had who were you know very much like that. My my boss when I was in college was absolutely that way. Like you know we, my, some of my fellow you know student workers and I when we were in school, we'd go over to his house every you know every so often to uh, smoke cigars and play cards. Um, and it was great. We loved it. You play um, poker at all? Yeah, yeah. Nice. We play poker and you have cigars and uh, I have my runs of good luck here and there. Um, mm. but it's very rare. Um, I'll, I'll occasionally I'll have a you know a really nice you know evening where I'm getting good hands a lot of the time and I'm playing them well. Um, when you're smoking a cigar, do you feel like you're better than you actually are? I feel like, I uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's funny. Which I've actually, you know, 
I've never noticed whether or not my nystagmus gets better or worse depending on uh, whether I'm having a cigar cigar or not. I've smoked my fair share of cigars. I don't think that it really affects me so much. I don't think it does either. I think the alcohol, you know, if I'm having a drink, it does a little bit, it it affects me a little bit more. The alcohol Um, will make my eyes go crazier, but I won't notice it because I'm drunk. (laughs) I've had a so i had this a similar experience um first drink or two my eyes actually slow down where i can see better interestingly enough and interesting i'm uh you know that's something i've noticed you know i i, I gotta you know there's there's a a kind of a um a point basically on the the whole the a whole trajectory essentially if you want to look at it that way where i'll hit this like i don't know what you want to call you get it. a happy spot yeah exactly i guess where i'm just you know everything is just, like i i notice that things are a little bit clearer it's a little bit easier to focus you know things like that um and then i'll you know the next you know i'll drink you know a little bit more and then it's gone and then i can't see at all um and i i can relate to that man i actually do know that i can't see because like my eyes start to like i i get like a little bit um paranoid i guess trying to you know see what i'm missing Uh, because i know i'm not seeing stuff weed does that to me weed's definitely done that to me i don't know about alcohol man with alcohol i just don't care if i can't see i'm having a good time I mean, that's if I'm drunk. I really don't. I used to get drunk, you know, a fair share back when I was like a freshman in sure. college or high school, but it's really slowed down a lot. You're right about though, about that, the happy spot though, like right before, right before you're drunk, but you're buzzed. Yeah. Where things are where just every... a little more calm and exactly. uh, you feel your senses a little bit more and th- yep. your eyes just are a little bit more calm. I could definitely relate to that. Yeah. So that's, you know, uh, something I've noticed in, um, since since I've you know kind of been paying attention um, to things like that, um, but I oh sorry I don't, go ahead I don't um, I don't usually you know I'm not like uh, going out there to try to hit that spot you know all the time like I I'll sit down and have a singular beer you know at the end of the day and that's that's it you know and I, I don't need it every day. You like whiskey at all? Uh, I do. Yeah, I'm nice. a, I'm a big drink? guy. Okay. Um, I ha- I'm a big fan of 1792. Um, I just had a- one. I just had one. I mean, it's gone now, but yeah, it solid a bottle minute. of bourbon. It yeah. Always, always rely on it uh, for just for being good. By the way, for um, anybody listening, I said I just had one. That doesn't mean I just drank some now. I'm completely sober. I mean, I, I had a <laughs> bottle of it and it lasted like a couple months, but the bottle is gone now. That's what I meant. I am not drunk right now. <laughs> That's a good clarification. <laughs> I, I figured I, I should clarify that just in case. Yeah, I just don't want anyone being like, Dude, his eyes are shaking. Hell? Is he drunk? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, John Paul, got... I am a little curious though. Um, earlier you mentioned... I know I'm kind of backtracking a little bit, but I am really curious about this. I want I want to know more about it. Sure. You, you said that there is a correlation between some philosophy 
and in your career with the audio engineering. And you went a little bit into um, how it helps you problem solve and how it makes you look at things more logically. But I'm curious if there's anything else that you've learned from philosophy that you're able to transfer to that or even like in anything else in life. Like what can you, what, what are your biggest takeaways from the philosophy that you've learned? Um, as well, you know, to answer, you know, as far as career wise, it was primarily the problem solving and just kind of being logical. Um, that's, that's largely where, where that, um, that learning resides. Okay. Um, is, um, or as far as being career oriented, um, from a personal perspective, um, I can, I can speak a lot more, um, to speak to a lot deeper influence one of the last classes that i took for my major um in college was a class called uh the philosophy of love um and it it it, uh, dives into the study of um how human be you know not the psychology necessarily because there's i mean there is a lot of psychology involved in this particular class um but it it dove into some of the philosophical um, aspects of what it means to be a human being, what it means to love because all human beings are, are wired to give and receive love from each other. Um, and then some of the things that arise from not giving or receiving well, the love of others, essentially, um, so one of the things that we, and, and what happens um, as a result of um, that imperfectly given love, that imperfectly received love. Um, and you see this most often in uh, childhood. If you look back at um, you know, some of the things that you experience as a child and you look at, you know, oh, you know, this is something that happened to me as a child. How does that you know, something bad for, for example, um, like, you know, your, your parents do the best that they can, um, to, you know, love you into existence. That is their job. Um, as this class, um, uh, posits, um, as the understanding goes. So your parents quite literally by loving you, give you your existence. Um, but human beings aren't perfect. Um, and so they sometimes make mistakes. Um, and so you'll have situations where, you know, maybe for who you are, the way that your parents love you isn't necessarily the way that you're receiving that love. Um, or they're just incapable of loving you the way that you need to be loved in a specific way, essentially. Mm-hmm. Because uh, it, it takes different forms. Um, and that can lead to some pretty devastating psychological and emotional wounds that you have to deal with later on in life. Um, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's a very vulnerable subject. Um, you, uh, one of the things that I noticed, you know, taking away from that class was a lot more knowledge of myself um, I was able to introspect a lot better because I understood a lot more um, of why I am the way that I am. Um, 
what things exist in my life, what wounds exist because of ways that I wasn't loved well as a kid um, or ways that I didn't receive love in a, uh, properly. Um, one of the books that we read in that class was a, um, a fascinating look into um, the, the study of childhood play. Uh, it's called Dibs in Search of Self. And I think Dibs is kind of a, um, uh, a nom de plume um, for the, the child in question. But basically, he's incapable when he comes to the child psychologist of play, uh, which is an incredibly important part of childhood is learning mm -hmm. how to um, play, make believe, you know, whatever. Play with um, others. Yeah. It's, it's huge in developing social just, skills and just to, you know, have um, the ability to imagine playtime on your own. If you're, you know, just, the only kid in the house for whatever sure. reason. And, you know, you have to know how to entertain yourself through play. Um, and this child in the book didn't know how to do that. And it was only through uh, multiple therapy sessions that he learned how to play and to express himself through play and in a way that was constructive. Um, now, how does that happen through a therapy session? Well, they, they basically, they, if I, and it's been a few years um, since I read the book, so um, I beg forgiveness for the, any inaccuracies that I may. Uh, how dare you relate not remember here. everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, but for all intents and purposes, uh, they basically put the kid alone in a room full of toys and that was essentially, and I think he had a, he may have had an attendant there who was like kind of keeping an eye on him, making sure that he was okay, mm -hmm. but not other, really interacting with him otherwise, unless he initiated the interaction. The idea was for him to lead the, take um, the initiative, take the initiative and lead, lead the play session essentially. Um, and so it was something that he like, it's not play is really not something you can teach to a child. Um, you can't really teach them. Like they just kind of learn how to do it instinctually. Naturally. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's something. So you that, put them into an environment where, where hopefully it would come out naturally. Encouraged. Exactly. And yeah. so that's kind of what happened, but it took a lot Very of time. Interesting. Um, and they had to, you know, in some ways explain to him why certain ways of play aren't necessarily appropriate. Like it's not necessarily appropriate to just destroy things without reason. Like, you know, you could build, you know, um, a house out of, you know, blocks um, and then knock it over because, you know, oh, you know, Godzilla or King Kong is coming through um, and knocking over this town that you've built up with your blocks. But just to, you know, just do it for no reason toys for no reason whatsoever that's that's really not an appropriate way to play um, so, so do, do, is that something that they tell the kid or is that also something else that they try to influence naturally for, I, for the I'm, kid to know if i recall correctly it was something that they wanted to try to influence naturally within hmm. him like through the um through the environment rather than 
outright telling him what was wrong because that's another thing god i am curious how they could do that it's it's uh if you tell some if you tell a child that something you know that they shouldn't do something or that something is wrong or whatever it can really kill your self-confidence yeah which is something that's really important to develop in children because if you don't they're not going to have the um the spirit to go out and do something like i'm sure in your case like this starting this podcast was um you know really a um a daunting task i would imagine because you know it's a lot of work to get something like this off the ground i didn't Um, tell anybody about it there wasn't a single person in my personal life who knew about this until i had i think at least three episodes out because i didn't want anything not like anybody was going to influence me not to do it but I just didn't want to put it out there. I wanted to keep sure. it between myself and the community and then, you know, of get course. a couple episodes done and start talking about it. But yeah, I could, is... I could definitely see how you don't want to discourage the child from, from doing something like that. But that still leaves me with the question, how do you influence a child naturally to not do things that are morally wrong or not morally, but like, you know, destroying something yeah especially if the kind of does play into moral right and wrong in a way yeah yeah um because if you think about it it's them acting out something that's you know they're kind of imagining but it could be based on something that they saw somewhere else so maybe since the child's never really played before and you put him in that environment so you would think instinctively that it's important you you think instinctively that a child knows how to play if you put him in a playing environment. So you would kind of just also assume that it's it's nature to not destroy things as well. And that would come along with it. Yes. Yeah. Um, sometimes that might be something that you have to... That may have been an instance where they stepped in and were, took a more active role in explaining like, okay, you know, you can't... Or this, this is something that you shouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm, you know, I apologize. It's been, like I said, it's been about five years since I read the book. I'm a little fuzzy on some of the details now, uh, but the, the salient points, you know, about how parenting um, influences um, a child's growth into adulthood are the points that really stuck with me. Um, and there was parts of that story where you saw interaction between the person who was working with with the child and the child's parents um and you could see there were some um differences in how mom approached her relationship versus how dad approached his relationship with the child um dad at the time you know he seemed a lot more hands-off and mom was very hands-on um i mother hen sort of characterization if you will, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, there, there are good and bad things to both of those approaches, but it, it's largely what led to the fact that he, the child was, you know, essentially incapable of um, play and incapable of really communicating what it was that he was trying to, what he was experiencing. Gotcha. Um, whether that was through play or through words um, i could talk about this all day man but i, I mean i think honestly I mean, it's it's, it's a really fascinating this. subject and it kind of ties in 
um, to the idea of parenting that we had. Um, I was just gonna asked. just gonna transition it right in, <laughs> right into you. I was like, well, now that we're on the topic of how parents can influence the direction their their child's life. Exactly. Now, I'm sure your parents have had a, a huge role in that, especially bringing you to the first doctor and them telling you that you can't, you can't read, you can't go to college. And here you are, you obviously read, you're working at the college that you graduated from. Now, what role does your parent, what role do your parents play in that? Um, a pretty important one, honestly. I mean, so. Because they could the have just stopped at the first doctor. They could they have. Went, and, you know? and that was something that, you know, I don't really understand. I don't know. Cause I never really discuss this with them you know in depth but my uh i guess the way that i i see it is that they they didn't like the answer that they or the 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 response that they got from the first doctor they mm-hmm. they decided they wanted to get a second opinion um and i mean medically speaking that's entirely within you know a patient's right is to get another opinion on whatever diagnosis it is that they receive um especially when it's something as you know potentially life-changing as you know a vision impairment that you know could in theory according to this one doctor leave me with you know essentially a life of nothing um and so they they're by the way i want you to know before you continue yeah uh, that you are not the first guest to tell me that a doctor has told them this i had a previous guest uh to lean and it wasn't her, I don't believe, but it was her cousin. And, and her her cousin also has nystagmus. And okay. the cousin's doctor told them, like, you can't do anything. Pretty much the same things that your doctor told you. You can't, you can't read. You're not going to school. And, but unfortunately, the parents kind of went with it. The parents didn't really go so deep into finding a different opinion. So that that will hinder you, man. That'll really discourage a child. It really will. I mean, that's, you know, right. I mean, we're talking when I was, you know, an infant, a baby, a toddler. This is, this is when this kind of all got started. Um, I mean, my parents were dead set. Like we are going to do everything we can to make sure that our son has a good life because that is our responsibility to him as his parents is to make sure that he is set up for success in whatever it is that he does, however that he achieves that. That's awesome. Um, and so that was something that they followed through on throughout, you know, my childhood was always doing things that they felt were in my best interests. Um, I went to regular, I, I went to parochial school for um, kindergarten and first grade. Um, and after that, my parents decided to, pulled me and my other brother who was a year behind me in school um, out of that program, out of that system and homeschool us um, because they felt that it was a, it would be um, a schooling experience an educational experience that would be much better suited to each of us as individuals than the parochial school would be able to provide because they're catering to you know, the number of people in the class, not yep. to each individual student. It's kind of a lowest common denominator sort of thing. Right. And so my parents are very much like, um, we're not comfortable with that approach because we understand our sons have specific needs as students, as people. 
and we feel that we are best equipped to provide for those needs. Um, so like I need extra time to complete assignments because while I can read, sometimes it takes me a longer time to get through a reading assignment because I get tired and my eyes start to go, you know, a little loopy and I can't focus on the words yep. or I'll get lost um, on the page. That happens too. Um, so did you graduate high school from, from homeschool? I did. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's um, the transition there within itself. Um, I had, but the, the thing with that was I had an accredited program that I was a part of. So I like, I, I was enrolled in a homeschooling or a distance learning program that we completed from home. Um, so homeschooling, yes, but also have, you know, an actual high school diploma uh, sure. from an accredited institution. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things there, like a lot of misunderstandings about homeschooling that, that don't exist, you know, or, or that, that aren't an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that, I mean, that's, that's great to hear um, how your parents have helped you so much in becoming who you are and you always love to hear that stuff yeah and that's that's all along the way they've been very encouraging um as far as you know making my my own decisions for my life you know figuring out what it is that i wanted to do with my life and um giving me the space to um follow some of the things that i really you know do to do some of the things that i really enjoy doing um, and I'm very so if you're a parent and you're, you're listening to this, don't be, don't be discouraged. Not, not saying that you are already, but I've definitely seen a few discouraged parents or concerned parents, I should say. Um, and I think yeah. this is a very good example. And, and, you know, another thing that you do that I think would surprise a lot of people here is, is you're into carpentry. I am. Yes. Um, so one of the things, and um, this ties in a little bit with my job um is uh i advise our campus's drama club um and one of the things that i do as part as their advisor um is i help build their set pieces um and so this week actually i've been working on building um set pieces for our upcoming musical um which we we open next week um you know no time like the present right <laughs> um and I guess it's probably a little bit strange to see the guy who's got the uh, visual impairments, you know, working with power tools, you know, with, with a. It's um, an interesting one, man. I haven't cir- heard this before. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm last couple of days. I've been working with a circular saw with a, you know, a, a miter saw, um, you know, a, a power sander, you know, drills, impact drivers, all kinds of, you know, stuff, a hammer and nails today for something else that we're working on. Um, I mean, just tools that you never really would think that someone would handle, but I, here I am working, working away with them. And I've I got this kind of all my fingers and no start. <laughs> I really think this kind of falls into place with what we were discussing earlier about how if things are staying consistent, it's it's easier to maneuver. It's easier to know what you're doing. You don't really have to see as much as you might think. Yeah. And obviously you do need to see. I mean, you can't. I don't think you can do this if you're completely blind. But No, carpentry is definitely one of those things. And and perhaps I could be, mis- we could be mistaken. You know, there could be, you know, a blind carpenter out there who, who, 
you know does his work without needing to see there's gotta be there's the, there's always there's always I'm that sure one dude. someone like that exists uh and <laughs> you know I know there's a there carpenter is, out there with no hands too i would love to meet him so i can ask him you know how is it that you do what you do um i mean i know for a fact like i have you know problems at you know from time to time making sure that things are lined up correctly like i'm absolutely you know double triple quadruple checking making sure that when I'm going in to drill a hole, I'm drilling in the correct spot so that when I drill through to set my frame in place, um, I'm not completely, you know, you know, coming in at an angle or, you know, completely off to where I'm underneath or over top of whatever board it is that I'm trying to join with my frame. Um, yeah, I definitely takes me a little bit more time to get through stuff like this, um, than perhaps someone who's got more experience, um, or, you know, doesn't have the visual issues that I have. Um, but just uh, as because, you get more experience, that, that'll quicken. It should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just because I have nystagmus, um, just because I'm nearsighted doesn't mean that I am going to sit back and let someone else do the carpentry, you know, like I, I'm comfortable enough doing it and you know handling these tools to where i i you know i don't have a, an issue and i'm sure you know if people were to, to look at the situation and be like that's actually kind of impressive that, that you're doing this i'm like well yeah um it is but i also just enjoy it yeah straight up like it's um it's therapeutic for me like i had i mentioned i have you know had hammer and nails today i mean that's there's nothing like going and just smacking a nail with, with a hammer. <laughs> um, there's something about just that action is so relaxing. It's cathartic. Um, there is something about it. If you're dealing with, you know, you've got some sort of problem and you want to, you, you know, you're kind of frustrated or whatever, grab a hammer and some nails, go find a piece of wood that, you know, you own that you can actually hammer nails into um and drive a few nails you know work out your aggression through something constructive or you know work on a problem in your head while you're doing something constructive or something or just let the work take the place of whatever it is that you're dealing with because you're just getting agitated thinking about it and you really don't need that agitation in order to solve the problem. Usually one of the things I found is, you know, by getting into this kind of creative state, working with lumber um, and making it look, you know, like it needs to for the sets, I'll hit this, um, hit this flow of just, I'm going and I'm making progress and it's just, everything is just working for me and it's great. I love it. Um, and I lost my train of thought. I am so sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, d don't worry. But I, th I think the the way that you look at hammering and doing the the carpentry, it would be a similar way to how I look at going to the gym or sure. even doing cardio Absolutely. for an extended period of time. Absolutely, and I'll do that. You know, we talked. To, you know, earlier, I I, I ride a bicycle, um, and there are times where I am just in a particular headspace where. I need to get out of the house or whatever. And I go and I 
ride, you know, 10, 15 miles. Um, I think what it really is, is just being in the action of being completely focused on one thing. It takes your head out of whatever, you know, gets your head out of whatever problem it is that, you know, you're stewing in and puts you into something else entirely. Puts you into a meditative state. Exactly. Essentially what that is. When you get out of that, when you're done and then you come back to the problem, chances are there'll be a solution sitting right in front of you that you had no idea was even there because you were so focused on the problem that you couldn't see the solution. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to take a couple of steps back. Yeah. And uh, do something else. Whether that's, you know, through hitting the gym or getting out and, you know, riding a bicycle or going for a run or a swim or doing something creative, whether it's painting or, you know, picking up a guitar or, you know, sitting down at the piano or whatever it is. Um, Do that. Get out of your own head for an hour and then come back to whatever it is that you're struggling with. Chances are the solution will present itself pretty quickly. Um, I think that's, I think that's a really good place to end this on just like a really positive note there. And um, man, I really appreciate you coming on here and talking to me. This is, this has been definitely a favorite of mine. Very informative. It was definitely very nice talking to you. I have. Oh, you know, I'm glad I was able to, uh, to come on. I'm glad I discovered your podcast. Um, and like I said, you know, I hope that some of the things that I'm, you know, relaying here, are, you know, uh, give, you know, parents of children with misdiagnosis a cause for hope. People, I can't like imagine us, that it won't, you know, and I hope people out there like us also, you know, look at, you know, have a chance to see this at some point and say, oh, wow, you know, maybe life isn't so bad. Like, yeah, sure. I don't drive. I have a great community around me that mm-hmm. helps me out when I need to get places. So, um, even if your only takeaway from this episode is that master of puppets is about <laughs> drug addiction, <laughs> drug addiction. <laughs> that, that's still, yeah. a, that's still good to me. I'm still happy with that. So, uh, Hey man, I really appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. I'm you know happy to have been a part of this. All right. Uh, I, I want to thank everybody for listening. If you're watching this on YouTube, please give the video a like, give the video a comment. Let me know what you think. Um, If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, thank you for listening.